0: This podcast may include adult content. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories: "Cracking Open" by Ethel Rohan and "Doris" by Rolly. Bound Off is always looking for great stories. Visit our website at boundoff.com to find our submission guidelines. While there, check out our news blog. You can also find links to us on Facebook and MySpace. Also on our website is the Boundoff Bookstore in affiliation with Amazon. There, you can purchase the book Don't Mean Nothing, short stories of Vietnam, featuring Boundoff contributor Susan O'Neill. Cracking Open. Written and read by Ethel Rohan. Listening time, two minutes, two seconds.
1: Cracking Open. Her addiction started with dry roasted nuts and quickly jumped to peanuts. At her worst, she was consuming a large glass jar of peanuts daily. She loved, while hating their salty taste and greasy feel, the repetition of tossing them into her mouth. You're making a monkey out of yourself and me, her husband said. Her weight nudged 300 pounds. She couldn't afford therapy and had no success with Weight Watchers and so attended local alcoholic anonymous meetings Friday evenings, inwardly substituting peanuts in all the pertinent places. After several weeks, she abandoned AA, too weird, but replaced the peanuts with shelled nuts, lower in fat and calories, and limited herself to a cup or two a day. Happier, she especially enjoyed the messy process of cracking open the fibrous shells and fishing out the shriveled nuts. Her husband complained about the litter of shells and shell dust throughout the house. She took to gluing the shells to the kitchen appliances and sticking them to the walls and furniture. You've turned our home into a monkey house, he said. One Saturday morning, he appeared in the kitchen, a suitcase hanging out of either arm. In a rage, she jumped up and down, the house quaking, its contents teetering. Most of the peanut shells fell to the ground. Still jumping, she sprang her skinny self out of her carcass. Her husband dropped the suitcases, reaching for her. Baby, you're back. She pushed him away. Take the peanuts when you go. She whirled around, lifting her leg and kicking her enormous husk full in the chest. Her husk thudded to the tiles, shaking the last of the glued shells to the floor. She danced from room to room, lifting the shells and throwing them up into the air, naked and loud as the day she was born.
0: Ethel Rohan writes, She used to sound more Irish. Her work has appeared in or is forthcoming from Ella Pank, Fish, Decomp, Dog's Plot, Story Glossia, Mud Luscious, Word Riot, and more. Doris. Written by Rowley. Read by Kelly Shriver. Listening time, 12 minutes, 15 seconds.
2: Doris. By Rowley. She could be seen, Doris, fair weather or not, walking up and down streets that might have been bridges, a vanilla wafer, so tentative were her steps. The straw hat, the woolen jacket, as characteristic as her gray eyes, her strong English chin. She was not much to look at, no, and hardly what you'd call clever. Pardoned, though, at least in part from the wrath of the public, by the combo of old age and spinsterhood. People still talked, of course, but not as often or loudly as they might have. Which isn't to say she never heard. But knowing how tightly people clutch at their illusions, she never bothered to undeceive them. Spinster. No doubt she hated the term. Unfair that when a woman remains unmarried, she becomes some sort of pitiful dishrag. Whereas a bachelor, well, he's just lucky, wise even. But Doris, there was a good chance anyway, was, if not clever, no, at least wiser than many cared to realize. Fifty years earlier, her father had served as veterinarian, dentist, and doctor to the town's thousand or so residents. In no extraordinary day would he reach his hands into darkness, and, some red-gloved magician, procure a colt, a tooth, a swollen appendix, and all before a light lunch of soda and biscuits. Dr. Death, they called him, though not for a lack of success. The death part was a subjective, nervous term, as the man never administered anesthesia in his life. This was purely on principle. "'Now stop your fussing,' he'd say to one, in the midst of prying out a tricky wisdom tooth or setting a broken limb, as though agony were a blemish of character. When he died—not quite seventy, but one can only guess—the population did its best to crush into the Baptist church, though the man was no Baptist and never set foot in any church of any persuasion, as far as anyone could tell. Dr. Hansen had few relations, fewer friends— so the larger number of those gathered must have been present, as Mrs. Hiller, something of a gossip, confirmed, just to make absolute sure. Living as he did, retiringly, spending little on himself or anyone, the doctor was reputed, well, rich. A bit of gossip that proved true on the reading of the will, which left to Doris, an only child, on her marrying, his entire estate of close to a million dollars, a sum in those days. Suddenly, one of the plainer faces in town, reappraised, was found much more enticing, and it would be a lie to say that Doris, now in her mid-twenties, finding men other than the male and milk variety on her doorstep for the first time, didn't enjoy the surplus of attention. Of course, the male and milk variety continued to show up as well, but were twice as courteous as before, which was nice as well. Affection will settle, and hers landed comfortably on a young man, younger, about twenty, by the name of Robert Allen. Robert was not much to look at either, nor particularly bright. His family, if reputable, hardly affluent. Passing him on the street, one might remember, if anything, the practical non-existence of his upper lip. Or his odor, which, by no fault of his own, his parents were sausage-makers and good ones at that had a bias towards sage and garlic. Of course, for several years prior, it had been no unusual thing for Robert to show up at her doorstep, at almost everyone's, in the capacity of delivery boy for the family business. But when he began to put in an exclusive daily appearance at Doris's every afternoon at a punctual 5.30, it became clear that she'd either grown unusually fond of sausage or unusually fond of Robert. Public opinion settled on the latter. FOR A TIME CAFE TALK CENTERED ON THE STRANGENESS OF THE DECISION. THERE WERE IN THE AREA HUNDREDS OF MEN OF BETTER MEANS, CERTAINLY BETTER LOOKS. NO SHORTAGE EITHER OF MORE DESERVING CASES, LIKE JENSEN THE WIDOWER, WHO, IN THE SPAN OF A YEAR OR TWO, HAD LOST FIRST HIS WIFE, THEN HIS LIVELIHOOD. WHY THIS SAGEY ROBERT, WHO SEEMED, HEIR TO A STEADY, MODEST TRADE, TO BE NICELY SETTLED IN LIFE ALREADY. THEY MARRIED THE FOLLOWING JUNE. Likewise, in the Baptist church. It was thought uncivil to ask why. Likewise, as much of the population as could squeeze itself, like stepsisters into glass footwear, squeezed itself into the pews. Though the abundance of Allens, so many sausages crammed into the front few rows, lent the small church, in the summer heat, an unfortunate odor, everything else went smoothly. Both with and without a hitch, as Mrs. Hiller who thought she was clever, noted, no doubt as often as she could. As the couple ran out of the church, half the children threw rice, half held their noses. A month later, they separated. Another month, and Robert was dead. To plot out the hows and whys is to draw on hearsay, guesswork, outright lies, a construct of cobwebs only. The truth of the matter was something that not even Mrs. Hiller, in all her omniscience, could divine. The only definite facts are these. After Robert's funeral, during which, it's said, Doris showed little emotion, but it was difficult with the veil to tell, she turned hermit for a time, emerging briefly over the next few months, only on a handful of occasions. And then, slowly, she resumed her usual routines— and seemed to those who knew her best not many and not well to be unchanged by the events of the previous months nothing in the short interval of their matrimony had seemed to anyone amiss granted one can't see through walls but there are houses well known in any town where heated talk can be overheard at a hundred paces there was none of that however no unpleasantness of any kind The couple walked most afternoons and seemed, to all who stopped and spoke to them, happy and in good spirits. And then, four weeks into the marriage, at half past five of a Friday afternoon, Robert strolled home after work to find the front door locked. No amount of pleading or persuasion could induce Doris to open it, nor could an explanation be procured. At last, exhausted, he returned to his family home intending to stay a night or two, until whatever chance affront had offended his young wife was forgotten or forgiven. And it was there that, on Wednesday of the following week, his habitual day off, Robert, his parents already busy at the shop, was awakened by knocking. He'd have likely ignored it, too. It was only just after nine, if the knocking hadn't had such a professional steadiness to it. Hastily dressing, opening the door, he was greeted by a severe older man in gray, who presented him with a handful of papers, nodded, and turned on his heels. Robert shuffled through them, one then another, in disbelief. They were divorce papers. The mental steadiness of the young man declined rapidly after that. By the end of the first week, he'd become sullen, untalkative. By the second, he'd given up washing, seldom leaving the house, and then only to bang fruitlessly on his marital door, or walk about aimlessly, eyes on his feet. There were doctors' visits, which became more and more frequent and lengthy. There were whispers of hospitalization, insanity, a family trouble, it was said, for several generations." and when a failed attempt at his own life was followed, several weeks later, by one more successful, people were, by that point, if saddened, hardly surprised. As for the sudden about-face in affection, there was, of course, no shortage of theories. Married life, perhaps, didn't suit a woman already accustomed to singledom. Some sexual inability on Robert's part, some suggested. Was there something unnatural about his new bride? Overwhelmingly, though, it was thought that Doris had no intention of remaining married to anyone. She wanted her inheritance, nothing more or less. And this apparent coldness in a woman who thought nothing, it would seem, of crushing the hopes of a mere boy for mere gain did nothing to earn her many sympathizers. In the weeks following Robert's death, public sentiment was so powerfully opposed to Doris that it was a wonder it didn't congeal, Wield pitchforks, and drive the woman out of town. But small towns and small towners aren't as medieval as they once were. If the public, for the next few months, was stiff in its manner towards her, it was a stiffness that gradually eased itself away and was forgotten. A final theory. This one came years later, making its first appearance on the lips of some insignificant person at the café one afternoon. I was thinking, said the insignificant person, about Miss Hanson. As Doris was the only Hanson in town, there was no need to clarify. Yes, said her companion. Well, pausing for coffee, supposing you or I were in the same situation, I mean in the position to inherit a bundle, but at the same time not ready or willing to marry just yet. Mm hmm, said her companion, drinking. And let's say you or I decided, logical enough on a quickie hitch and annulment. You couldn't very well let the man in on it. He'd only want his cut, and not a small one at that. I suppose men are like that. So, if you were a thoughtful person, at least, wouldn't you choose someone who had something to fall back on? I mean, when it all went poof. Poof? I suppose so. So instead of picking some hapless fellow, you pick someone like Robert, with the family business and everything. Helen. That was the name of the insignificant person. I mean, how could she have known he'd gone off his rocker? Maybe it had nothing to do with it. There was his uncle, Helen, and his grandfather, Helen, and several cousins, too, that all—Helen, "'I see your point, dear. It's an idea. We all have our theories. "'But I don't think it very likely, not in this case. "'There may be some doubts, a few things unanswered, true. "'But one thing, to me, is absolutely certain.' "'Her companion emptied her cup, setting it down with a surplus of force. "'The woman is a monster.' "'She could be seen, Doris, for the next fifty years, "'in her hat, her woolen coat, walking on wafers, first with a cane, a walker, then crawling across pavement to the churchyard, lying by her father, her mother, not far from her one-time husband. And for all the contention, the talk, no fewer crowded themselves into the Baptist church to pay their last regards than would have for the saintliest. Throughout the service, the burial, the afterwards tea, not a shadow of disrespect. If monster she was, the public had apparently long since forgiven her. But people will forgive almost anything. The end.
0: Roly writes for adults in Quarterly West and on CBC Radio, and for children in Spider and Ladybug. Visit his blog at www.rolywrites.blogspot.com. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories.